unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Over the past two months, the South Indian state of Karnataka has been the site of significant religious tensions as the BJP government and Hindu nationalist organizations associated with it have advanced policies and issued statements that many believe have explicitly targeted Muslims in the state. From a ban on hijabs in school to calls for boycotting Muslim businesses, we are seeing sharpening religious divisions in the state that is home to India's biggest technology hub, Bangalore. To make sense of the latest developments in the state, I am joined on the show today by Sugata Srinivasaraju, one of the most respected political journalists and authors who has been covering political developments in Karnataka for decades. He is the author of several books, including Furrows in a Field, The Unexplored Life of H.D. Devagoda. I am pleased to welcome him to the show for the very first time. Sugata, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Milan, for having me. So, I want to start maybe by asking you to place the state of Karnataka within a broader context. Uh, I think most of our listeners will know that the BJP, the ruling party at the center, has a rather limited presence, I think it's fair to say, in most of southern India. In many of the big states, whether it's Andhra Pradesh, Telangana, Tamil Nadu, Kerala, it has struggled really to make much of a dent. However, uh, your state, Karnataka, is an important exception. Uh, and I'm wondering if we can, maybe we can start there. You know, what is it about the political, maybe social, cultural makeup of the state that has given space for the BJP to kind of make significant inroads? Karnataka is the only state in the South uh, which has BJP, a strong presence of the BJP, as you correctly identified. In the rest of the Southern states, they actually have no presence or very negligible presence. See, Karnataka would have also been something somewhat somewhat similar to the other states, other southern states, if not for what happened in 1999. I think people tend to forget that in 1999, the Janata Dal, which was, you know, I mean, the former avatar of that was the Janata Party, exploded and many splinters Occurred across India. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, in, in, in other parts of India, you know, it had happened previously, but in Karnataka, 1999 was significant because uh, the Janata Dal secular was born at that point of time, and the Janata Dal government, which was in power, uh, you know, I mean, lost uh, its, its its power. And I mean, Devagowda also lost his election. He was prime minister in '96. And uh, in 99, when he contested the Lok Sabha elections, he lost. And there was a lot of infighting. And uh, by then, uh, you know, I mean, Ramakrishna Hegde had been thrown out of the Janata Dal because of uh, his provocative statements that he had made when Devagoda had become prime minister. And 99 became, a, a, I mean, a point when all the people, all those who were opposed to Devagoda, and, uh, you know, the, the old Janata Parivar, the socialists, ganged up against him, and they went with the BJP. In a sense, they partnered with the BJP to contest an election. And that is for the first time that a solid oath share got transferred to the BJP. In a sense, BJP became acceptable because the JDU, which was formed at that point of time by people like J.H. Patel, by, I mean, Ramakrishna Hegde had his own outfit called 
uh, I think it was called uh, Lok Shakti, all of them aligned with the BJP to sort of increase the footprint of the BJP in Karnataka. Until then, nobody had even given a you know I mean small chance to the BJP. Uh, I mean I mean they, nobody thought they they could have a, a good shot at uh, you know I mean coming to power in, uh, in, in Karnataka. So I, I that was that was a very crucial moment when these old shares got realigned, and it so happened that these people who sort of uh, aligned with the BJP in 99, if you remember when Vajpayee became the prime minister, uh, Mr. Ramkrishna Hegde is even accommodated as the commerce minister in his cabinet. So, so that was the first very big departure in Karnataka's uh, sort of what, what, what one could call secular politics. So, so that is when, again, around 2004, 2005, you see uh, this whole thing sort of taking shape in Karnataka, where the BJP is looking like uh, it's, they, they start doing well in small municipal elections. They start doing well in a place like Ballari, you know, where the mining boom is happening. And uh, lots of money is being pumped in. And then they are in power at the center around between 2000 and 2004. And 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 they start capturing the media in Karnataka. So a lot of things happen between 2000 and 2004. And ideologically too, well, Milan, if you look at it, you know, I mean, the Baba Budengiri controversy, which uh, very famously uh, H N Anand Kumar, who was a minister at the centre of the Union Cabinet, had said that he would make that, or the BJP will make that, the Ayodhya of the South. That, that also started brewing around 1999-2000. It started becoming very big. And S.M. Krishna was the chief minister in the state. He was the Congress chief minister in the state. And that was the first big push ideologically that we see in Karnataka. But that did not have a huge impact electorally. But they start uh, by sort of creating this kind of divisive uh, communal politics with the Baba Budangiri thing earlier. So could I just maybe inter this is a good place for me to interject. I mean, you 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 made a couple of interesting points, right? One is that the BJP was clearly kind of given a fill up or born out of the ashes of the old Janta Dal as it imploded. The second is that its base really was not a uh, Hindu base per se, but really a caste uh, driven uh, a base where the kind of Hindutva came later. Um, if you fast forward to today, um, and we'll get into some of the specifics, we do see a lot of Hindutva on display, both in terms of public policies as, uh, as well as in rhetoric, uh, various statements, tweets even that, that leaders of, of, of the BJP and Karnataka have, have issued. And so is this something, you know, which was kind of latent in the population has been brought out? Has it has it been something that's been constructed by the BJP, this kind of religious divide? You know, how do we think about what we're seeing today and understand the sort of roots? The uh, the, the ideological thing that we have, you, you just mentioned, you know, the Hindutva thing or the communal thing, was something that they were always trying to attempt, but it was in pockets. Like I mentioned, the Baba Budangiri controversy in Chikmanglo district. Similarly, they had, you know, captured pockets of the Dakshin Kannada district. The Mangalore area was being experimented in uh, in very many ways. You know, I mean, this whole uh, trying to, I mean, I mean in, in, if in around 2009 or 8 or 9, I wrote a cover story in the Out Outlook magazine 
speaking about the Talibanization of Karnataka because, you know, I mean, they were trying to make all these little experiments like love jihad or all that were being perfected in the coastal districts of Karnataka. So they were at it. But still, you know, I mean, uh, their game was a caste game. It was not a, 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 a game of religion because Edurapa was the face of the BJP and he was keeping Lingayats at the center. He was playing the classic game in Karnataka. See, Karnataka is a state where caste has always played a very, very important role in politics, be it Nijlingapa's politics or Virendra Patel's politics or Devagauda's politics or Devraj Aras's politics in the 70s. All of it has had a, a very, very distinct caste kind of, you know, I mean, uh, bringing together. The, the whole Mandal thing that we see in the rest of India, you know, was already experimented in the 70s in Karnataka. The backward class reservations happened in the 70s in Karnataka. The assorted castes being engineered together to vote in a certain way had happened in Karnataka in the 70s. So similarly, uh, Yadurapa was, you know, just a continuation of that game, but he was using the Lingayats, and Lingayats were with the Congress earlier. And this whole uh, decision of Rajiv Gandhi to sack Virendra Patil, who had suffered a stroke, you know, I mean, unceremoniously throw him out from his chief minister's chair, uh, was something that had angered them, and they had all aligned with Hegde a bit, and Hegde was their kind of leader, and Virendra Patil was their leader. Uh, but uh, when uh, this man, Yadurapa, took over, he sort of played a very important role in keeping them at the center, but also started bringing together the other OBC castes around it. So, and he also sort of brought in a very powerful section of the Dalits to sort of support the BJP. You know, I mean, uh, the major, they're, they're called the Madigas in Karnataka. And they sort of, you know, started voting for the BJP. And then the STs, the Valmikis, the, the largest population of STs are called the Valmikis in Karnataka. They started supporting the BJP. And so he started constructing this little coalition of castes in Karnataka. And for him, it was not important whether a Vajpayee campaigned or a Modi campaign or an Advani campaign, but for him, this whole caste uh, uh, engineering was extremely important, and he played that game extremely well. So uh, that, that game, for that game, this whole Hindutva thing or the communal thing that we see today was not central or important because uh, in spite of playing such a wonderful social engineering game that he did, he could not get a full majority both times, in 2008 or in 2018. So which meant that he had still not conquered the south of Karnataka. He was only playing the game in central, north, and coastal parts of Karnataka. So so maybe this is a good time to kind of just ask you to, to, to reflect a little bit on the power structure of the BJP in the state today. So as you mentioned, for many years, there was a strong BJP leader in Yadirapa, also known as BSY by his initials. He served as chief minister multiple occasions. He had a reputation as a sort of a strong man, had a hold really on the party leadership in the state. Um, but he is not the BJP's chief minister at the moment. You would instead have a relative unknown in the CM's chair. So what are the power dynamics like within the BJP and Karnataka as we sit here today in 2022? Yeah, that's an interesting question because Basuraj Bommai, who has been made 
the chief minister, was the son of S.R. Bommai, who was earlier chief minister of the state for a very short duration, and he was essentially a Janta Parivar, Janta Party politician, and he called himself a royist, you know. Uh, so this man joined the BJP in 2008, so he was a late entrant. So the year that uh, uh, Yadurapa became chief minister, that's around the time that he joined the BJP from the JDU, which had splintered from the earlier Janata Dal and, and had only aligned with the BJP, and they used to contest elections uh, with the BJP. So he formally joined the BJP in 2008. And now, since Edurapa has sort of, you know, taken the back seat or has, has, has kind of retired because he's 78, 79, and this man has replaced him. But we should remember that Bomma is also a Lingayat. So he was made to look like a nominee of Yadurappa, but Yadurappa did not have much say in the whole thing. So they sort of, uh, they made it look like he was his choice, but they replaced him with another Lingayat because they feared that the Lingayat old base may sort of just uh, go away or may be angered. But this man does not have hold over the party or the masses like Yadurappa because he's, he's nobody in the sense he's, he's just uh, nominated and he has no control over the party organization. And it's also very convenient for the BJP to use someone like a Basuraj Bombay who belongs, who belongs to the right caste, you know what I mean, quote unquote the right caste, and sort of play the Hindutva game. So they are... He has become, I mean, in, in the words of other politicians, he's become the puppet of the RSS. And he is sort of just allowing one issue after another to, uh, you know, take hold of the state. So the so he's a very weak person. He's a cold, very cold person. I called him a very cold person because he does not seem to have any empathy or, you know, I mean, does not have any compassion when things are so going so bad and people are suffering and the economy is really doing bad. And uh, uh, I mean, the, the, the government's own statistics show you that nearly 15 government departments have underperformed. Nearly rupees 20,000 crore of money has remained unspent, including, you know, I mean, disbursement of scholarships to SC and ST students have not happened. So, I mean, there is a complete administrative collapse that we see, but this man has only spoken the language of action and reaction and communal politics. So he is certainly not an Edurapa because he does not have the mandate. He was not an elected chief minister. Of course, you don't elect a chief minister, but then you have a, a kind of uh, understanding that someone is leading the elections and the votes are uh, asked in their name. So he was not anywhere in that line, in the seniors, in the line of seniors and BJP who uh, uh, people voted for. So. So this man is extremely weak, and uh, and BJP is now uh, really thinking if they should, uh, you know, I mean, move away from this whole caste politics which has held them captive for a very long time. Because Yadurapa, being the strong leader that he was, did not allow the BJP to do a few things. Did not allow the RSS to run away with its own ideas. So he was he always checkmated them. He was always the stumbling block. So now the BJP thinks that. We win the 2023 elections or not, it's better that we change gears and move from this caste-centric idea of electoral politics in Karnataka to a more universal idea of Hindutva politics.
Hey, Grant the Monster listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. Maybe we could just, uh, just to, to back up for a second, just introduce some of these issues to kind of make it concrete for our listeners. So uh, uh, you, you mentioned about the hijab dispute in January, a dispute broke out over the wearing of the hijab at a government run college for girls in Udupi. Uh, the, the government ruled that, well, the school initially ruled that the wearing of the job was a violation of its uniform policy. Then the government stepped in, things really quickly escalated from there. Um, did this incident, was it a new development, you know, because this is something that captured not just national, but international headlines, right? I mean, it was in the New York Times, National Public Radio was, was reporting on the story. So, you know, what, what was it about this incident, uh, that really kind of spiraled out of control? So this was a very local issue. It could have been contained there and it was not happening for the first time. Let me sort of make that clear because, uh, Udupi and Mangalore and the coastal belt has always seen such kind of uh, uh, incidents. And, uh, you know, people, young people have been attacked in pubs and bars and uh, women are sort of, you know, I mean, uh, uh, spoken about in a certain way there. And so it was not completely new, but it was isolated. It always happened in a certain part. But this time, I think the government of the day encouraged the issue to sort of uh, go beyond that particular area or that, I mean, I mean, Mangalore, if it had just happened in Mangalore and if it was contained to Mangalore, nobody would have been surprised because that's something that's been happening from 2002, 2003 on in, in that that belt uh, in, 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 the, in the Dakshin Kannada district and Urupi districts. But the government of the day, I think, was also very, very uh, confrontational, provocative, allowed things to spiral out, and cabinet ministers started speaking, the chief minister started speaking. And I think initially when it happened, Milan, the, the uh, pre-university board uh, director uh, may, said that, you know, this principle is wrong and they should, he should not just, you know, I mean, uh, keep these girls out of the college. He should allow them to write the exams. But then, you know, there was a kind of local uh, Muslim group which reacted to that. And the moment the Muslim group reacted, there was a bigger kind of, you know, I mean, uh, uh, thing happening uh, with the Hindutva groups coming in. And then, so it was sort of blown out of proportion. And uh, one really is surprised as to how it sort of became a national issue because without the active participation of uh, certain agencies, you know, people deliberately trying to push the issue into the media, into the mainstream media. And you know what? the state of the mainstream media in India and, and especially the Kannada media here sort of made it uh, a kind of, uh, you know, it, they gave it a wall-to-wall -wall coverage and and uh, suddenly you saw these vigilante groups going and, uh, you know, stalking women, stalking these uh, young girls who were going to college and they made it a spectacle. And the moment it became a spectacle and it became uh, uh, something which was, uh, uh, I mean, that the television, it became very interesting for television and it got completely amplified and it was put into a loop and it was made big. 
So, so I think there was a deliberate effort to make it big. Although it was an isolated incident and it had happened earlier in Karnataka, worse things had happened in Karnataka earlier, but nothing like this, um, nothing was amplified to the extent that the hijab issue was amplified. And somewhere it struck a chord in, uh, uh, I mean, in people in other states and Uttar Pradesh elections were happening. And I always thought that they were provoking this in Karnataka because it could it would sort of kind of offer an air cover in Uttar Pradesh as well. So it is sort of, uh, now media is not local anymore. You know, I mean, uh, everything everything is national, everything is universal. So something plays, an image plays here, it sort of is distributed on WhatsApp and social media. And it, it started sort of playing out even in a place like Uttar Pradesh. But, you know, we've seen in the weeks after this row uh, a number of other developments, right? So we've had Hindu groups calling for the banning, boycotting of Muslim stalls set up at temple fairs. We've had members of the Bajrang Dal, of course, an affiliate of the BJP, uh, arrested uh, for allegedly attacking a Muslim trader for selling halal meat. And so uh, I guess my, my, my question to you is, I mean, of course, this is the, the BJP, the party, maybe a transition in their ideology, but clearly they also have a certain section of civil society with them which is either acting at the behest of of the RSS or at least sympathetic to their aims, that sort of ground-level support, um, could you describe for us how that has grown over time? Is that now felt across uh, Karnataka, or is it still relatively localized? I mean, I, I, I wish to believe, Milan, that it's still not, uh, the impact has not been great. If the impact had been sufficiently big with the hijab issue or one or two other issues, they would not have been forced to bring a series of issues to the fore in, in just a small span of time. They are, they are desperate to create an impact. They are desperate to polarize. And therefore, they are I mean, pushing one issue after another is what is, is my reading. You know, uh, I, I don't think a majority of the civil society is happy with what's happening because they do understand that, uh, you know, this is going to affect the economy. I mean, Karnataka is a completely different kind of state. It's not a Uttar Pradesh or a Madhya Pradesh. You know, the level of awareness here is very, very high. You know, with all the kind of communal polarization, Modi campaigning and all that, they still could not get 113 seats to form a government. They had to buy MLAs to form a government after the 2018 elections. So, I mean, the... They, they know that Karnataka is deeply divided on caste lines and the voting happens on caste lines. And they're now trying to, you know, bring this layer of Hindutva thing so that the, those caste lines disappear. But I don't see that happening as yet. It's, it's very, very early. And, and, and the Congress, for, I mean, uh, as an opposition party, was so scared to sort of speak about it that they just stepped back and, never spoke about the hijab issue. You know, when the hijab issue was uh, was happening, they were busy uh, protesting in the assembly. Uh, I mean, a statement made by a minister who's known to sort of make mischievous statements. And when I spoke to a couple of ministers, they said, I mean, former ministers of the Congress, uh, they told me that, you know, I mean, we somehow want this to go away because otherwise they are going to sort of hold us responsible for, uh, you know, I mean, appeasement of Muslims and minorities and all that. So they were 
basically trying to avoid that. So I don't think there is a lot of civil society thing because if you, when the halal meat thing was happening, uh, Milin, uh, there was so much of, you know, I mean, messaging on social media, Facebook and WhatsApp messages, memes on this whole controversy that people had started ridiculing this whole halal controversy because there was this Canada New Year that was happening and uh, that was April 2nd. And the day after that is a big festival where you eat non-vegetarian delicacies. And people just go out and buy a lot of meat for this particular festival. It's called Hosatadaku. And uh, and people started creating jokes around where they are going to buy meat, what kind of meat they're going to buy. And people just rushed to Muslim traders and, uh, you know, sellers and bought meat and, uh, and ate it happily. So I don't think, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, the BJP is desperately trying to create that kind of support, of course, and they're trying to project that kind of a support. But in Karnataka, I don't think it has happened as yet. In fact, there is a great deal of uh, people are very, very upset about the kind of administration that both Yadurapa and Bomai have delivered, have given. There's a lot of anti-incumbency. And I don't think they have a good post, I mean, report card to show people at the end of the day. And Karnataka has been a well-governed state, and people have a memory of that, uh, uh, of that, and people will take you to task when you go to campaign, so they have nothing to show. And this whole polarization is going to work to a small extent. They may get around 70, 80 seats, of course, you know, which is their typical share now, but I, I doubt if it has sort of helped them cross the 120 mark or 150 mark as they claim. Uh, it, it's still not working at the ground level. It's still isolated to two or three districts. And South Karnataka, which is the stronghold of Deve Gauda and his party, is yet to be conquered by the BJP. They have tried to make inroads. They have tried to, you know, bring in the Hindutva agenda there. But that part of Karnataka has an entirely different culture. So, so this whole Hindutva thing you see in Bombay, Karnataka, what used to be what is called as Bombay, Karnataka, because area districts uh, in that area were part of the Bombay presidency earlier. You don't see the same enthusiasm for Hindutva in the districts of Hyderabad, Karnataka, that is the Nizam's Hyderabad uh, districts, you know, I mean, the former districts that belong to Nizam's Hyderabad. You don't see a similar enthusiasm in central Karnataka. And of course, the South Karnataka is is is, is uh, a kind of stronghold of the Okaligas, and they are not willing to sort of concede. So all of this is something that you see in uh, uh, in the uh, Bombay Karnataka area and the coastal districts of Karnataka. So they are desperately trying to push it beyond those areas. So so let me you know maybe bring this conversation to a close by by kind of thinking about the future. You mentioned that elections are in, in the offing. If held on time, they will be held in May 2023. Of course, they could always be advanced. Um, what kind of jockeying are we seeing? Right, you mentioned that the Congress has been very. Uh, 
tentative in responding to these latest provocations. The JDS, by contrast, had really stood up, particularly its leader, the former chief minister, Kumaraswamy. So, so, so this is a state which has been known as a two and a half party state, some people call it, because you have the BJP, the Congress as the two main uh, national forces, but you have a very important regional player in the JDS, which may not be strong enough on its own to form the government, but can play an important kind of kingmaker, queenmaker role by by throwing its weight around. So what are the what is the kind of constellation of forces look like as we think about this next election season coming up? The BJP is without a Yadurapa. So they have to sort of uh, retain the oath share that they got last time without an Yadurapa at the front. You know, I mean people are certainly not going to uh, believe that Yadurapa is going to come back uh, as chief minister in 2023 if they come back to power. So they have to sort of compensate for that loss of oath share that they may sort of uh, suffer. Because if you remember, in 2013, when Yadurapa formed a separate party, the party BJP was reduced to just 44 seats. And Yadurapa took away close to 8% of the oath. And that was sufficient to sort of completely decimate the BJP. And then there was another very powerful leader, an ST leader who formed another party. He was always with the the BJP and uh, he was part of the the Reddy group in, in Balari, the powerful mining group. And he sort of moved away from the BJP and he took away 5 to 6% of the oath. So these two people came back and therefore their oath share was restored in 2018. Congress won in 2013 by default because Yadurapa had walked away. Otherwise, they would have they would have sort of just be stuck with just 75 seats. They got 122 only because Yadurapa took away uh, a lot of uh, the BJP seats. You know, the victory margins were very narrow that election. As now the BJP has a huge problem, which is they don't know whether the Lingayats are going to vote with them, because. Again, the Lingayats have be, have become a very divided uh, uh, block after the exit of Yadurapa. Now, the biggest subcast within the Lingayats are asking for 2A reservations, more reservations. And they have been setting deadlines every 15 days for, this, for the sitting government. And they also want their nominee to be the chief minister because this subsect, which is called the Pancham Salis, are the biggest... Uh, subsect of the Lingayats, but nobody from their group has ever been the chief minister of the state. So there is that kind of pressure that is building up and nobody knows what's going to happen if the Pancham Salis don't vote for the BJP. And so the Lingayat thing is going to be broken there. And uh, with the Congress, Congress is confused as always. You know, Congress does not know whether it should take a very strident uh, position against uh, all that the BJP is doing or it should sort of play the Hindutva card from the back door. I mean, they have a formidable uh, leader in Sidramaya, but Sidramaya is is not someone who has been able to create a new, uh, you know, I mean, uh, oat, oat base for the Congress. In fact, he has not expanded the Congress's oat share. If you look at the data very closely, he has not been able to do that. And uh, he is in direct conflict with the president of the party, D.K. Shiv Kumar, who is, does not have a great reputation. I mean, he's he's been in jail, there, he's been out on bail, and he's known as a very, very corrupt person. So the public image of the PCC president, the KPCC president, is not 
something that uh, will go down well with the people. And his influence, again, is very, very limited. And Congress has uh, had this, the, the Congress's own share has shrunk from 1982, and they've done nothing to rectify that. So they have, I mean, they've only won when the BJP has sort of splintered or the Janta Parivar has splintered. So if you look at the 1999 election when Krishna came back to power, uh, that is when the Janta Dal had completely splintered. If you look at 2013, they came to power only because the BJP had splintered. So the Congress has come back to power only by default. There is no program or programmatic offensive that the Congress has sort of created to capture power. So that is the problem with the Congress. And I really love the way you described this two and a half thing. You know what I mean? So Janta Dal is a half party because its influence is only in the south of Karnataka and they want to become a full party. And that is the reason why, you know I mean, they're, they're taking on issues head on and he's trying to create a kind of federal agenda like he's trying to sort of borrow something from Mamta Banerjee. He's trying to borrow something from, that is Deva Gauda's son, H.D. Kumar Swami. He's trying to borrow something from Stalin. He's trying to borrow something from Mamta Banerjee and trying to tell the people. His messaging has become very clear in the last three or four months where he's trying to say, see, I came to power twice and I, and I sort of did all these things which, have, which are still working. Give my party power, I mean, uh, independently, and I'll deliver more because, you know, if I could deliver it without a full majority, I can sort of give you a, a better kind of bargain. And uh, he is now trying to pick up the pride of Karnataka kind of thing, which is not, which personally I feel will not work because Karnataka is a multilingual state. It is not like uh, a Tamil Nadu or a Kerala or an Andhra Pradesh where the, the, the language pride works in big way, in a big way. Karnataka, every district, Milan, is a trilingual district, except for three or four districts. So Karnataka, the language thing does not go beyond a point. So Karnataka, culture and pride has to be worked in a completely different way when in a multilingual, multicultural kind of environment, trying to push this whole federal agenda and try to create a pride, uh, uh, I mean, uh, agenda for his party. I don't know how successful it will be, but I believe that people who are really unhappy with the BJP and who don't want to vote for the Congress by default may go with the JDS. That may be an expression of anger. A small percentage of voters who don't were anti-Congress voters and therefore were with the BJP and now are disappointed with the BJP's governance and therefore may vote JDS uh, in a, I mean, as a as a kind of you know demonstration of their anger. So that may happen. So I don't see any party getting a clear majority as of today. And uh, I don't see Hindutva working beyond a point in Karnataka because, again, because of the multicultural and multilingual thing that I've been speaking about, Hindi does not uh, play the same kind of uh, Hindi imposition or Kannada. Even Kannada imposition does not work beyond a point in Karnataka because the the, the, the mainstream dialect, the, the standard dialect is the South Karnataka dialect. And people in North Karnataka feel left out because this dialect is imposed. And if you look at the coastal belt, there are four active languages. If you go to a place like Gulbarga, there is Urdu, there is Dakhni, there is Kannada, there is Telugu. 
So if you go to a place like Belgium, you have Marathi, you have Canada, and the constant fight is, it's like an Indo-Pak war, you know, in, in Belgium, you know, trying to decide on the border and language and all that. So Karnataka is not a Tamil Nadu kind of a state. So playing the pride thing may not work uh, as much as we think. But there, I mean, so, so I think a lot of things get cancelled out and it still looks like a hung assembly for me, the next one. Nobody seems to be getting a majority. My guest on the show this week is Sugata Srinivasaraju. He is one of the most respected political journalists in the southern state of Karnataka. He is the author of many books, including Furrows in a Field, The Unexplored Life of H.G. Devagoda. Uh, Sugata, thank you for, for joining us to help decode what are very complicated politics that uh, up until recently have not gotten, I think, their fair share of airtime nationally. Uh, but now, of course, uh, we're all dying to learn more about uh, the inner workings of the state. Um, so thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking the time to explain it to us. Thank you, Milan. Thank you. Grant Thamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun-Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest-growing podcasting platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Caroline Duckworth, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff J. Pranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast